I'm Kate LaVale. And I'm Michael Vieira. Welcome to this episode of The Canary Group. We've spent our careers working in global strategy, communications, analytics, and intelligence. And if there's one thing we've learned, it's that nothing is ever quite as it seems. With more information than ever, moving faster than ever, it's becoming harder than ever to understand the world around us. So we're on a mission. To combat the tyranny of conventional wisdom. To connect the dots and answer the so what. And empower you to do the same. Welcome to today's episode of the Canary Group. Uh, I think we have a pretty cool topic lined up. Michael, what are we talking about this week? We're going to talk about Japan. Woo! That's right. Because it's been, as we're coming into the new year 2024, and I think that we've been seeing, you know, there have been just a lot of changes that have been going on overall globally. And Japan, I think, sort of personifies sort of like these new changes in a kind of a post-globalist world. Mm-hmm. So, and plus with my Japanese in-laws and living at my house for the past two months, we've been watching a lot of Japanese news. So it's made it very relevant, at least in my household. So <laughs> we'll see. Wonderful. I know this is this is one that is near and dear to your heart. Uh, you've lived there. You've married into the culture. <laughs> you You do hold it in your heart. So I think that it's only appropriate we dig in. Uh, there's also been some really interesting news coming out of Japan as far as I think Putin is going to visit some of the contested islands around Japan, or at least he said he was. Uh, we've also got Japan launching rockets to be able to continue to monitor and gather intelligence on North Korea. There's just a lot going on right now. Where do you want to start? <laughs> Well, I, I think one of the things is to sort of address where Japan was and where Japan is right now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at the end of the Second World War, Japan, part of uh, the United States implemented, uh, we re- helped the Japanese to write their constitution. Uh, help sounds much, is much too nice a word. But one of them was Article 9. And Article 9 said that Japan would renounce war forever. Uh, mm. And war would no longer be a an instrument of Japanese policy. So Japan became sort of like a, uh, a different kind of country in the region. And as the years went by, uh, I think you know, we've heard Americans and American politicians complain about, you know, why do we have to spend all this time and energy uh, defending Japan? And that's just because well, of Article 9. Right? <laughs> I think it's also interesting, too, that the, the Japanese probably, at least in my mind, the most stark sort of cultural transition right you know pre and post world war ii as far as what they stood for what they valued uh you know coming out of it and article nine is a huge contributing factor to that that you know now i I would say our kids growing up think of japan as a very peaceable community uh, or culture rather that's very different than what our parents probably imagined when they thought of the japanese Right. Our, our parents or our grandparents, I guess, depending upon yeah. your generation. Um, Fair. Well, it's not to go off topic, but if you look at where the Japanese and the Germans are now and mm-hmm. who they were prior to the Second World War, it's you know kind of night and day as far as I think how I think uh, outsiders or foreigners would look at their cultures. 
Uh, mm-hmm. But we did a very good job of, I think, of pacifying uh, those two countries. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. they, they literally were bludgeoned down and then suddenly they had been resurrected. But now in this new this new old world that we're in, you know, we're, we're returning back to a, <laughs> we've had this, this, this peaceable. Second, first, same as the first. <laughs> yes. We, we had this very long period at the end of the second world war up until about, you know, up until very recently, we've had this reasonably peaceable era of, of global peace and trade and everything else that's been unprecedented, I think, in the history of the world. Um, but the, the vast majority of history has been filled, I think, with, you know, a lot more, um, a lot more dissension, a lot more war, a lot more, um, a lot more strife, and we're sort of, I think, re-entering into that age. And so, countries that like Germany and Japan may have to change and adapt to that. And that's what we're going to talk about now, because what's happening is, is that there was always a segment in Japan uh, led by, by people. I would say by uh, predominantly like the Liberal Democratic Party, which I think that uh, a number of Western observers have said was neither liberal nor democratic, uh, but it's been one of the uh, predominant parties that's been in power for most of the post-war period. But there has always been a faction of the LDP, the Liberal Democratic Party, that um, has always wanted to make Japan, quote unquote, a normal country like everybody else and being able to have um, a military and to be able to ha- uh, be able to go to war if they so needed to as far as national policy. That would mean uh, getting rid of Article 9. One of the things is that currently the Japanese have this organization called the GATI. The GATI is the Self-Defense Forces. Uh, so you have the Maritime Self-Defense Force, the Ground Self-Defense Force, the Air Self-Defense Force, etc., etc., etc. These organizations, though, have become over time pretty much just militaries, but with just a different kind of operational structure. So mm. uh, they don't actually... You, you kind of, it's sort of like an, the Japanese look at it as like an employment agency. You go to the, the GATI, you get a job, you get some skill sets, and then you get out and you go do something. Um, but it doesn't have military discipline. Uh, for example, a few years ago, they found that a GATI officer was selling information to the Russians, but there was no mechanism in place to be able to prosecute this person. Oh, so, my goodness. So the Tokyo Pro- Prosecutor's Office basically got him for just theft. It was like <laughs> stealing like corporate secrets. Holy moly. Yeah. So there was, and there's also things too, is that I mean, the excesses of the pre-World War II system have been counteracted, I think, with sort of like, the Japanese never go halfway. It's always they go in the other direction full on. Uh, so to the point now that, you know, they completely had dismantled, you know, the system at our behest, of course, uh, the U.S. and the Western allies. But we, maybe we went a little too far. And so now the Japanese are finding themselves having to rebuild a lot of this institutional knowledge. And there's mm. been this gradual sort of sea change where the Japanese are slowly boiling the frog. And one of these days, I believe, they will eventually come out and say, you know, we're going to rewrite Article 9. and then, But it's going to be a very slow process of doing that. Mm-hmm. Which is How do you feel about that? Yeah. Oh, personally, me, or do you think? Yeah. Uh, I think it's inevitable um, because the situation is changing, and with a resurgent China, and with yeah, and that's one of the things that I think we'll be talking about too is the fact that you have 
you have a Russia that is slowly deflating. And we can talk mm-hmm. about Putin being why he's coming this week or where you know why he's in the, yes. the, the Far East. I would right love, now. yeah. But, I mean, you have a Russia that is, I think, sort of kind of on the outs. And that's going to lead to, I think, um, nature abhors a vacuum, right? So you have, you know, and, and the question is, do you want the Chinese to fill that vacuum? Or do you want to have various powers to fill that vacuum? And I think Japan and South Korea are you know, two countries that must actually go in and fill so the, mm-hmm. vac- the power vacuum that's in there. Now, the reason why Putin is going to this region is, is that at the end of 1945, um, I think the original plan was that the Russians and the Western powers would equally divide Japan like we were doing to Germany. Right with the pot, with the Potsdam Declaration and everything that we did. So, but what ended up happening was is that Japan surrendered before the Russians could really come in, and I think the United mm-hmm. States was more than happy to let that happen. And a lot of people think that's because the country collapsed because uh, they surrendered because of the nuclear attacks on Nagasaki and uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But the reality is most likely it was more that the Soviet invasion of Manchuria and the impending invasion of Soviet troops onto the home islands. Japan, prior to 1945, uh, the Japanese had moved up. There was the four main islands. uh, And then in the south, you had Okinawa. And in the north, then, there were a chain of islands that went up called the Kuros that were part of Japan. And then the Japanese also were on Sakhalin, partially on Sakhalin, I think also on Kamchatka which they had received at the end of the Russo-Japanese War. Uh, I think it was like 1901, 1902. The Russians took that all back and then took the Japanese Kuril Islands all the way that are just right on the cusp of Hokkaido. And I think the closest of those islands may be 24 or 25 kilometers. That's very, very short. That's not long. Yeah. Right. And the, the Soviets, and now the Russians, they never signed a peace treaty with the Japanese. There's always been an armistice. <laughs> Oops, <laughs> forgot. <laughs> forgot about that one. Well, it's always been convenient because they could always hold that carrot out to the mm. Japanese to, I don't want to use the word extort, but it to coerce mm. uh, the Japanese to, to, and to constantly leverage, hold Leverage, yeah. Yeah, leverage. With ever, without ever the intention of ever giving them back. But it was always this, this sort of thing. Now, if you go to the Japanese, if you go to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, MOFA. Uh, there, That's fantastic. Go, it, is, it is fantastic. If you go to the MOFAs, <laughs> the Japanese MOFAs um, website in English, you can read and they'll tell you that one of the first things they put up there is that the, about the what they call the Northern Territories. That's Japan's territory and we will get it back. Now, currently, Russia, you may or may not be aware, but Russia is fighting a a conflict in Ukraine and is very sure. I've heard of this. Perhaps you have. It's Uh, it's because I'm an expert in this field, definitely. (laughs) I was just going to say that. People in our audience are going to be thinking, oh, yeah, that's cute, Mike. But but one of the things, though, is that the Japanese have, excuse me, the Russians have kept significant military forces. Uh, I think somewhere around to the tune of like thirty to 40,000 troops in the region, in that area, specifically. Oh, interesting. And also keeping uh, significant um, hardware, uh, air defense systems and, hmm. and other things, and radar and whatnot. That could be very useful, I think, in Ukraine. But it's keeping those things there because of the fear 
And this is the Russian mindset that if we were to withdraw our troops and withdraw our, our forces, the Japanese would attempt to retake their, their territory. And I think the, mm. the Russians don't see anything necessarily. Of course, they don't want their ter- to lose territory, but they understand that. Now, to us, that seems ludicrous. And I think publicly, the Japanese would say, no, there's no way in heck we would do that. You know, But let's suppose that things continue to sort of... De- decline, degrade, and the Russians have to remove more and more troops from that area, what happens? What happens? Does Japan just sort of like let that low-hanging fruit sit there? Or let's say that there's actually an out-and-out right collapse in the region. Uh, Do you let the Chinese come in? Do you let some other power come in and occupy that land? Do you just let it sort of sit there and kind of go to pot? I don't know. I think that... That would be hard to resist, yeah. So Putin is going there specifically. It's interesting. Of all the places he could go, he's going to this region specifically, I think, as a message to the Japanese and to the United States that you know Russia still is here and we're not going anywhere. Uh, but that's interesting because there's a lot of places hmm. he could go. Uh, and, and give a speech and talk about things. But that's where he went. Um, because it's also, though, uh, that region is very, I think, underdeveloped. And I believe, for example, I think the Chinese are covetously looking at that region because of the resources. Hmm. The Chinese don't want the people. And there's not a lot of people out there. And just to just to fully lay it out, what resources? Ooh, uh, everything. Uh, you have, <laughs> you have uh, petrochemicals. You have... Um, all sorts of just like, you know, there's mineral wealth and there are ores and there's timber and there's just water resources and there's all this just stuff. I think in the past we've called that region, I think I called it frozen Costco. It's just this, yeah. this okay. right plum. The Japanese give you a little bit of history prior to the mid to late 1800s, I guess maybe the 1850s. Prior to that, Japan was still sort of a backward culture had been under the samurai's military rule the shogun for a couple of hundred years had been isolated Mm -hmm. from the outside world and then the americans and admiral perry came into japan and opened the country up the japanese look at their relationship with america as being very old and very sort of like special we have a very special relationship Mm -hmm. americans do not i just think americans think of japan (laughs) oh japan I'm trying to think of an analogy here or some sort of metaphor, but I guess it's sort of like maybe it's your neighbor. Is it like Barbie and Ken? (laughs) (laughs) He's just Ken. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Just Japan. Right, exactly. That's actually really funny. That's like that's a really good example. Yeah, it's exactly. We're talking about the Barbie movie, right? So like the what the the Ken character whose life yeah, Japan's just Ken Beach. His life revolves (laughs) around Barbie, and Barbie's like, oh Ken, you're so nice. Maybe. Yeah. Unfortunately, the United States is Barbie. We take Ken for granted. We take Japan for granted. But the kanji for America is big rice. We literally, and rice Mm. is such an important part of Japan. So it's like the fact that we are a big rice country, right? But right now, Japan is making, you've seen in the past year or so, um, Japan making announcements about increasing its military budget. You've seen Japan trying to mend its relationship with South Korea. You've seen Japan reaching out and making um, amends with Australia and making a defense uh, making mm-hmm. defense plans with Australia. Uh, those are all 
significant because if you think about what at the end of the Second World War, there was a lot of animosity to the way the Japanese had, had fought yeah. and treated people. There's no sugarcoating that. My father-in-law and I have had uh, quite a few discussions about the war years and his experiences and his father's experiences and things like that. But I've had to gently remind him that, you know, it it took two to tango. It wasn't just, you know, somebody coming in and beating up on Japan. But at the same time, it's like countries have to move on. You can remind the Germans only so much of what they did in the, in the Second World War. Uh, but if you want the Germans to be... Um, I think, a useful partner in Europe and be part of the collective defense. You need the Germans to also, you know, do their share. Yeah. Um, and if you and Japan, I think, has shown, I think, a much more stronger willingness, I think, to start taking up the idea of building up being a, a military bulwark. Yeah. You know, you catch more flies with honey. I think helping them seems like it would be more constructive you know, helping them to do it the way that we approve, the way that we would benefit from, that's not a bad thing, is it? No, I don't think so either. I think there's also a change in how the Japanese themselves look at their forces. Because you have to believe, remember that there was, at the end of the Second World War, uh, I think, you know, rightfully, the militarists were discredited. Mm. And the, the cult of the emperor, which had sort of had transitioned over a period of time, from the Meiji Restoration, which is after the after the Americans had come in, and they found that the country could not be best served by the samurai class, mm -hmm. the Emperor Meiji was restored as the head of the country, uh, and from that way forward, then they started a Western they started Westernization and started the industrialization of Japan, and changed the culture. It's one of the strengths and also one of the weaknesses of the fact that it can. Japan, I've always talked about, it's like sort of like a wind-up toy. You wind it up and it just keeps going and going and going, gaining speed and momentum until it hits something and then careens off and goes in a different direction. And so that's what happened with Meiji. And then at the end of the Second World War, that's what happened. It just went in a different direction. It adapted to the new realities and it went into that direction. What we have right now with Japan is we're seeing a, we've been seeing this gradual, I think, transformation and a changing slowly over time of people's perceptions. But I think still a lot of Japanese still see of themselves as a country that's not militaristic it's not a military country but the reality is, is if you were to look at the if you were to look at what the japanese have as a self-defense force this is not uh you know this isn't you know uh, this isn't a bunch of coast guard revenue cutters and you know a bunch of just armed police the japanese self-defense force the maritime self-defense force the jitai it's a navy in all but name it has significant combat power it has a lot of technology that it's worked with the United States to develop. It has more combat power right now than the British Royal Navy, which I think is significant. Wow. If you were to compare the two of them side by side, just in numbers and capabilities. And if you're looking at what the Japanese, the Japanese have a seagoing tradition. Um, in fact, the Japanese Navy was built upon the traditions of the Royal Navy. So, I mean, if you see it today, they still have a lot of the old traditions that they had learned when uh, they had gone and learned under uh, the Royal Navy in the 1800s. 
to include curry, by the way. Most people may not know that, but there's actually, in Japan, you'll see something called kaigun curry or uh, navy curry. It was a dish that was introduced uh, that they had learned from the Royal Navy. And, and so oh. now it's a, a thing you see in Japan. So oh, that's interesting. So if you ever see navy curry, now you know where that comes from. It's kind of a mild kind of curry with potatoes and meat and rice. Okay, and serve it I grew up on that curry. I didn't know it there was navy see. curry, but like very thick potatoes, meat, mild like it's not really cream so much as it's just really thick right yeah right okay uh yeah yeah kaigun curry so thank you royal navy thank you thank you japan so but i think one of the things that you're seeing though is that the japanese have been slowly building up their capabilities slowly building up things their ground self-defense forces have more and more power but to the average japanese like we just saw after on the new and new year's day we saw that there was that um that Earthquake in Ishikawa, mm-hmm. which is in Western Japan, a, a terrible thing. Luckily, Western Japan is not as densely populated as Eastern Japan. If it had been in Eastern Japan, I think it would have, would have been a, a lot worse. Still terrible, but Ishikawa is somewhat isolated, somewhat underpopulated. So it, it's uh, it's a terrible thing, but not as bad as it could have been mm-hmm. if it had happened you know, somewhere else. But what you're seeing is for most Japanese is that the self-defense forces are showing up and distributing food, water, blankets, the ubiquitous blue tarp to cover your house. That in itself is is a whole other story. In Japan, just everybody has a blue plastic tarp. You just see them everywhere. So I called it the ubiquitous blue tarp. So you have the GHI handing these out to people for, you know, dozens of reasons. But uh, that's how the Japanese see it. But I think more and more, when I was in Japan... The Japanese population was resistant to the idea of having a more, um, I think, offensive capability. Then North Korea fired a Taipei-dong rocket over Japan Mm -hmm. and immediately within 24 hours, because the United States had been talking to the Japanese about deploying Patriot missiles and putting in a the standard missile, the Navy standard missile three system and things like that to be able to intercept missiles. And the Japanese were like, no way, this is too much. You know, we don't need this. And then literally the day after the Taipei Dong went over Japan, uh, the Japanese were like, you know, this sounds like a really good yeah, idea. Yeah. And so now. i thinking about it. <laughs> I think I underestimated the value. The, th- the funny thing is that North Korea. They may not know this, but the North Koreans have done more, I think, to help remilitarize Japan or get the Japanese used yeah. to the idea of maybe having a more... Because now Japanese foreign policy has been talking more and more. It's not about passive self-defense. You come, you hit us, you invade us, and then we fight to the point of we can see that you're getting ready to hit us and we preemptively strike you mm-hmm. or we hit your missile before it hits Japan kind of thing, which is a big change. It's a a big change, I think, psychologically. But it's been over a long period of time, and North Korea has provided sort of like that, I don't know how to describe it, but like that boogeyman or been that that guy over the horizon who, you know, you're not sure what they're going to do and being able to convince the Japanese population that this is a real threat. And in the past year or two years, I think even the Japanese are talking about, they've been building larger and larger ships and this is the fun thing about the self-defense forces is that there's this whole fallacy everything is defensive in nature right or it's very you you try to put a fuzzy kind of like uh you try to make it look fuzzy and non-threatening 
But the Japanese just built a pair of very large, what they call, I think they called helicopter anti-submarine destroyers or something. These are aircraft carriers, and they are the size of a World War II aircraft carrier. Holy moly. So you're talking about a ship that's roughly about 800 feet in length, mm -hmm. right? And they're now, instead of carrying just helicopters, I think the, the Japanese recently decided they were going to buy the newest Northrop F-35, uh, I think the F-35B, the, 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 the VTOL uh, fighter jets from the U.S. But we're still pretending that this is not an aircraft carrier, right? <laughs> uh, but the Japanese also said that they were going to build two large missile ships, massive vessels that were going to carry um, a lot of defensive missiles and things like that to be able to be forward deployed and shoot down North Korean stuff or, you know, even Chinese stuff. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the Japanese are building these, the Americans do not have an equivalent ship in tonnage or capability mm. that the Japanese are proposing to build. This is significant. And then I guess last but not least that there are a series of some very small islands and islets, islands and islets, they're called the uh, Senkaku, that are way south, oh, very, very, very close to China. And China has been for years and years and years making threats, you know, saying, mm -hmm. you know, symbolically, they would like to basically take these islands back because it, it'd be a nice way to kind of like poke Japan in the eyes and build up Chinese prestige. But uh, Xi Jinping said, you know, you know, he's been telling his uh, his Coast Guard and telling his third fleet that the, Ch the Chinese use a uh, sort of like this paramilitary fishing fleet that they use to kind of go out and cause trouble. They're, they're directly controlled by the, their Navy. Uh, the, the PL, the People's Liberation Army Navy controls these these quote unquote paramilitary civilian ships and what they do is they try to go and you know they the chinese believe that if they can put their people in and around this island constantly uh they can eventually claim its chinese territory and push the the japanese out so the japanese have been in there and been pushing them out and pushing them back um and putting actually forces on those islands and whatnot so you know, Japan feels, I think, that you know they're being pushed upon by China. They're being tested by North yeah. Korea. They see a possibly collapsing Russia, and all of these things are not; these are not conducive to you know uh, business as usual. And so, it's a new world. So that's that seems very reasonable. Even one of those things taken independently would, I think, be motivating to to make sure that you can defend yourself. But to be in the center of all three, not to mention just the general uh, uncertainty on even beyond just the region, I think all of that would point towards it, it would be silly for Japan not to try to figure out how best to defend itself. You remember the, the prime minister who got um, assassinated, mm -hmm. I think, last year, mm -hmm. Abe Shinzo? Uh, Abe Shinzo was a very big proponent of, uh, of a remilitarized Japan. Mm. And we could talk about conspiracy theories about, you know, what happened to him. I have my own particular conspiracy theories. <laughs> you know, I, I think that he was, I, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but I don't think that the guy who killed him was acting alone. You know, mm. I'm not saying there was a, I'm not saying there was somebody in a grassy knoll. Was he a patsy? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I think he was, I think he was, uh, I think the gentleman who, who was in on it, not a patsy, but not acting alone. Well, interestingly enough, the gentleman who assassinated the, the former prime minister was a member of the Maritime Self-Defense Forces. Oh. <laughs> so, 
Yes. Uh, so he had technical skill and he had built this sort of this, this contraption, this, this electrically fired hand cannon to, to assassinate the prime minister. But I think that what had happened was, I believe, that this person had been radicalized and, and had been directed toward going after the prime minister. Um, and that goes into a whole lot different kind of thing, you know, talking about, you know, what's going on. We can talk a little bit about the economics and where Japan is too. I mean, yeah. But um, anyways, but Shinzo Abe, uh, Abe Shinzo was a uh, big pro- proponent of of a remilitarized Japan. And in after his death, I think that a lot of people I think became sympathetic I mm. think, with his. Not everybody. I mean, there's still a very strong pacifistic group. There's very there's there's cores of you know of people who don't want to see a militarized Japan. But I think overall, I think it's easier to convince the mass that this is the right way to go in this direction. And I think that the Japanese are slowly starting to see things that way. My in-laws, my mother-in-law and father-in-law, I mean, they grew up in during a wartime Japan. They, they saw Japan, I think, you know, before, during, and after. And I think they see some of the things that are changing and they realize that Japan has to change. You know, so we'll see. Childhood's end, right? You know, they, mm-hmm. have, to, they have to move into the new world, but... But would you like to talk a little bit about, I think, about where Japan is economically? Yeah, I was going to say, why don't we why don't we go to economics? I do think that that's a natural next step for us. Okay. So when I was growing up, it seemed that Japan was going to be the world power, right? That's yeah. much, what, much like the way people talk about China now is the way that people talked about Japan, you know, when I was... Mm was growing up. Um, if anybody here ever read uh, ever read Stephen Gibson novels, you know, cyberpunk, and it was always Japan was always this super country that was just like, you know, making everything. That is really interesting from a pop culture standpoint, like Rising Sun, the Michael Crichton book. And yes, yeah, yeah, there was Japan was slowly taking over industry and then would have con- like they, they sort of secretly gained control. That was a common plot point. They would secretly gain control yeah. over things. I think part of that, though, also comes from sort of like this underlying sort of Western fear of the insidious, you know. Oh, totally. Uh, somebody was talking about how Michael Crichton was kind of channeling, you know, the, the alarmism of the 1800s and sort of like the Fu Manchu kind of, you know, the insidious man from mm. the East who's coming and, and taking things. As we found out later, you know, in the book, we find that I'm talking about the book of life. You know, we found out that, you know, Japan wasn't going to take over the world. So <laughs> Japan's been in a 30 year slump since, uh, my gosh, it went into a slump right after the death of uh, the the previous emperor. So we know that emperor actually is Hirohito, but in Japan, Japanese don't know the emperor's name. They only know the era. So the emperor Hirohito, his era was known as Showa, the Showa emperor. So, um, and then we say, oh, you mean Hirohito? And your average Japanese person would be like, who's that? You're like, that's the name of the emperor. And they're like, what? I didn't know that. <laughs> but the Showa era was from prior to, to the Second World War, and all the way up until I think the late 80s, maybe early 90s, right? And then he passed away. And then suddenly the Japanese economy burst and it's been in a 30 year slide since. And so it's surprising to a lot of foreigners to hear that, you know, Japanese, your average Japanese, even people in well in good jobs, don't make a lot of money. And it's also a thing about, you know, prices. We know that we think of Japan as being very quote unquote expensive. Mm-hmm. I was reading something the other week about housing prices. 
you housing prices like in Tokyo are a lot more reasonable than in other places like London or Toronto or New York City, you know, where you would just have, you know, very, very housing prices are through the roof. Um, but the flip side, too, though, is that in Japan, <laughs> the place that you stay is just a place you sleep in. You don't live there. Yeah. You know, I can talk from first, you know. And that was like I was listening to like a Canadian economist talking about the, the affordability of, of housing. And he says, that sounds great. It's like it's like if you've lived there, you would know that it's not it's not so great. Um, you know. Yes, it's like eight hundred, nine hundred dollars a month. But you're getting like this very basic kind of accommodation. And, you know, I lived in my one apartment. I lived in this one apartment for four years in Tokyo. And it was two and a half years before I had actually spent a day living there. Really? I, had, I was always seven days a week. I would get up. I would, you know, I would clean up and be gone the whole day and then come back at night. So I remember the, ver I can remember it vividly. I spent one day in my apartment. And I was like, oh my gosh, it just felt so alien. And I was like, <laughs> you know, I was like, what am I doing? You know, it's like, this is weird. But in any case, I mean, that's sort of the trade-off. The other side too is that there's no real, uh, the reason why, you know, you, like in New York City, is like, you know, you can't just build a zoning, right? You just can't build everything yeah. anywhere. In Japan, you build anything anywhere if it fits. You've seen, if you've ever been to a Japanese city and you'll see that buildings are built in weird shapes. And, and it's not like you can't trace the stability geometrically of, of you know, you've got the, the strongest, biggest thing on the bottom and it kind of moves. That's, that's not, sometimes it's just top heavy. That was one thing in, um, so I grew up in San Francisco and obviously we're part of the ring of fire, lots of earthquakes. You saw, especially after the 89 earthquake, lots of effort and regulation to make the city more stable and safer for larger earthquakes. And so buildings that were older got retrofitted with support on the outside, which, well, maybe not the prettiest thing, meant that that building was not as likely to fall down in an earthquake because we did see some buildings just collapse in 89. So in Japan, also on the Ring of Fire, prone to earthquakes, what has been very interesting, and I took this seismology course in college, I'm not an expert at all, but I took a class. And what was so interesting was in Japan, they did not necessarily approach the problem the same way of going in and retrofitting what's already there, making sure that there's new safety standards for what's to come. Uh, it may be different for, say, their nuclear plants now. They might have tougher standards on on safety for that, but for the most part... The materials are a lot of very bendy material, which is great. You want to bend, not break in an earthquake. But they didn't necessarily take the same approach of really stabilizing foundations and making sure that you know things wouldn't fall down. Rather, they made sure that they could be re rebuilt quickly again. And that's just a very yeah. different mentality. <laughs> you have to, if you look at the Japanese and you think of it as being a very old culture, but the Japanese themselves are very much about the new and the shiny. Mm -hmm. And it's the idea of preserving things is kind of very much a Western mm -hmm. thing. It doesn't mean that the Japanese don't preserve things, but the Japanese don't have a problem going in and tearing something down and then rebuilding it, yeah. you know, rebuilding a replica of it. Yeah. I mean, it's only been, uh, I remember Kyoto, the old pre, the old national ca capital, the traditional capital of Kyoto, which is to the south, you know, of, of where Tokyo is. Tokyo is the, the modern capital. Kyoto was a very old city. 
And it was spared, actually. The United States did not uh, firebomb Kyoto because of its of its cultural and its uh, the monuments and things like that. It just didn't want to destroy it. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of that had to do with the fact of the uh, the U.S. ambassador and, uh, mm. and a number of, of key Americans who had, uh, academics who had studied and lived in Kyoto. And they said, you know, don't firebomb Kyoto. Well, you didn't have to worry about that because then the 90s and the early, you know, the early 2000s, the Japanese decided they were going to go in and just rebuild the city and they started tearing out old neighborhoods. It was foreigners who were living there who were trying to save um, old buildings, mm-hmm. who were trying to, they were going into into uh, rubble heaps and, and saving, you know, carved wood from mm-hmm. old buildings and things like that. So the Japanese, yeah, I mean, there's this idea that everything is transient and, you know, yeah. out with the old and in with the new. So there's a, I guess, the funny thing is, is that if you look at the great Kanto earthquake, which was in the 1920s, there's actually a national holiday, which is like National Preparedness Day, which came out of that experience of the great, of the great Kanto quake. Uh, so they, they, there's a lot of education on what to do for things like, uh, you know, earthquakes and, you know, Japanese, uh, Japanese families are all um, encouraged to have preparedness. Like you have kits and you, you have water sure. and you do yeah. these types of things. I did it. I had my little, I had my little Japanese go bag, you know, in silver fireproofed material. And, uh, you know, I had water, I had uh, liter bottles of water, you know, they were, they were around the house. So in case we had to go. I don't know if I would say it's pervasive, but that's certainly very common in the Bay Area as well. They teach it in school. Like you have classes where they're teaching you like, here's what your emergency supply should include. Here's where it should be stored in your house. You know, here's how you communicate when the phones go down because it's more of a a when, not an if. Sorry. I just, I'm fascinated by earthquakes. (laughs) Well, I, I worked for a little while, actually. Um, so there's a there's a city in Ibaraki prefectures that's just outside of Tokyo, and it's called Skuba. And Skuba is called Skuba Science City. It's literally the city that uh, is built around research and development and science and academia. Oh, interesting. And at, at Skuba, they actually have a material sciences department, and I briefly... Uh, worked for uh, a small organization that was doing. Um, Wait, is this where they were looking at? Is this where you were blowing shit oh. up? No, no, that was for the oh, U.S. Damn. government. Okay, sorry, sorry. okay, <laughs> that would uh, that been great. No, in this case, what they were doing is they were doing research and they were looking at you know better ways to build materials like concrete and plastics, steel, things mm-hmm. like that to make more rugged, more or more crushable. You know, so if it does collapse, mm-hmm. it doesn't. You know, it doesn't come down. It sort of like absorbs like a shock absorber. Mm-hmm. Um, but the key part was was that one of the key scientists there, um, one of the things that we came up with, and we were talking about Tokyo, and the question was, you know, where are the safe places in Tokyo in case like the big quake comes again? Mm-hmm. And the the, <laughs> the 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 final the final verdict was that there was no place that was safe in oh. Tokyo. Uh, there really was no safe place because it's just. Uh, for three reasons. One is infrastructure. If you've ever been to uh, Japan or have ever been to Tokyo, you would see that it is built upon, it's just infrastructure is built upon infrastructure. It's so yeah. dense and so everything else. It's like Blade Runner, right? Um, number two is that a lot of reclaimed land in Japan, but also in Tokyo, 
liquefaction. Yeah, liquefaction and liquefaction is such a big thing. Every time there's a big quake, the Japanese always have video of you know, parts of reclaimed areas that are suddenly Yeah, where it just sinks into the ground. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, I lived in a part of Tokyo that was that Edogawa ward, and it was like... And they had built these incredibly tall, like apartment blocks around my oh, little two-story little apartment, and I was like, and I was just thinking, will it go that way or will it go this way? <laughs> you know, it's probably another reason why I didn't spend much time in my apartment because I was thinking this place is going to go. That's well. fair. I think that's totally fair. And because of the density of of people, uh, when you see fires in Japan, that's one of the reasons why the Japanese mm. have such great fire, such innovative and great fire services, is because mm. there's a great they fear have of fire. To. Yeah. Right? So, uh, so you know, when when something goes up, it tends to go up and really take a lot with it. So, um, you know, those those types of things make I think. If there was ever a, a large, large earthquake in a major metropolitan area, uh, we would see, I think, a great deal of destruction. Mm. And uh, I remember the earthquake before I went to Japan in 96. There was the, the Kobe quake in 95. Uh, and I don't know if anybody remembers that earthquake. Maybe not. It's probably not on your, your A-list. But they had built, I think in the 1960s, they had built this very modern kind of uh, elevated expressway through the lower part of the city. Because Kobe is kind of up in the mountains, and then it comes down from the mountains through some valleys and then down to uh, to the ocean. And what had happened was is that this, it was built on a monopolar design, this very large central pillar uh, to keep, it looked very modern and really, you know, mm-hmm. really cool. Uh, the whole thing just fell over like, it just fell over like dominoes. Uh, and so when I went there in 96, um, roughly almost one year to the day after the earthquake, they had these very sturdy, you know, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. multipolar kind of things, you know, pol- uh, the, the raised thing was rebuilt, but it was very, very, very sturdy. And, uh, it doesn't mean it wasn't going to come down, but it's going to take a heck of a lot more than the previous quake to take this thing down. Yeah. And they were new city, the city had been rebuilt. And I, I remember telling one of my Japanese uh, coworkers, we were down there and I said, it looked like almost like, you know, I call it the Kobe action play set. It had been totally rebuilt. I mean, everything was being rebuilt. The roads were rebuilt. Buildings were rebuilt. There was still scaffolding everywhere. Um, but that's relatively a relatively moderate sized city. But if it was to hit something like you know, Tokyo or Osaka, ooh, you know, that's scary. Yeah. And you see what happened with Ishikawa. I mean, it's a mountainous country, um, very active volcanically. Mount Fuji, here, here's something interesting. So Mount Fuji, it, it, it's iconic, right? You know the mm. perfect shape mm-hmm. of Fuji. The last time Mount Fuji erupted was in 1707. And prior to 1707, Mount I didn't Fuji, know it was that recently. Yeah. Oh. Uh, but the thing is, is that the top of Mount Fuji is actually made up, I think, of seven separate peaks. But mm-hmm. the eruption of 1707 kind of leveled it off and made it kind of the shape that we know today. But if Fuji-san, you know, Mr. Fuji, if he was decides to to erupt, because he's just dormant, he's not he's not extinct. Um, you know, we did a study for, a, I worked for a Japanese company in the United States that was looking at, and, and they asked us to do a study on what would happen if Mount Fuji were to erupt and what would happen. And it was like, oh my gosh, you know, it would definitely affect Tokyo. It would, depending on the shift of, you know, where the, the ash would go, but most likely it would, it would have all sorts of effects. So 
Japan is sort of like this this uh, geologically unstable country. Like ticking time bomb. If I can yeah. nerd out and and just go down a rabbit hole, and then we will get to the economy. Okay. But this is why I find risk communication so just absorbing and interesting and like the most interesting thing you could look at ever because depending on culture and on how people prioritize things and communicate about it it has a very different outcome of the steps you take to avoid uh or to to mitigate risk so I uh, I remember in grad school, I was in a risk communication class with a volcanologist, um, which is the most fun word to say ever. And you think she's like studying Vulcans, but it's volcanoes. Her whole uh, sort of research and, and her effort was to be able to go to South American countries with indigenous communities that have lived on active volcanoes forever and try to convince them to move off the volcano when it looked like it was going to erupt. This was so much harder than it sounds. It's not like the hot lava is going to come and kill you. You know, have you heard of Pompeii? Uh, none of that, because these communities had been there for, you know, the, the entire sort of collective memory of, of the community. And the role of culturally sensitive and culturally informed communications necessary of identifying who the trusted sources were, because you can't just come in as a, you know, a government official or a foreigner and say, hey, move from your home you've been at for, you know, for generations. Um, but this is why culture and communications are so important in understanding risk and crisis, because it can change everything. You know, in sitting in San Francisco, the idea of not retrofitting buildings sounds insane. Uh, just, you know, native San Franciscans know you build your house on bedrock, not on landfill because of liquefaction. All of that makes total sense. But understanding the cultural assumptions that drive those sort of, uh, you know, opinions and presumptions, all of that is so, it's variable. And it's really important to be able to speak the language to find the right sort of persuasive messages and messengers. It literally makes the difference between life and death. And I think that looking at the Japanese culture and looking at our culture around communicating around earthquakes and how to be as safe as possible living in active areas. That's just, it's its such a great example. So thank you very much for letting me nerd out here. I no, am I, more than happy to talk the economy. No, no, we, we can go a little bit further if you want just to talk a little bit about, yes, I mean, I think that topography and I think has a lot to do with how it shapes um, a, a culture and, it's cut and how they look forward to things. And the Japanese, I think, subliminally the japanese know that they're living in a relatively unstable you know land mm -hmm. um when i went to japan it was like it, it was like you know we always thought about california being you know like that the unstable place you always talked about you know drought you always talked about uh, landslides earthquakes fire, volcanoes earthquakes. right yep. fire yeah <laughs> we got it and all. japan has uh, i didn't understand really what a what a landslide looked like until I saw oh. a Japanese landslide and it was pretty much the side of a mountain going down and it was like yeah. watching 
a freight train just right running by at at massive speeds. Uh, you mentioned about lava, you know, in, in, in volcanoes, it's pyroplastic flow that you've got to worry about. It's that superheated plasma that's rolling down the mountain. You know, mm-hmm. you can't outrun it. <laughs> it's like, you know, you say, well, why did people just run away from it? It's like, now you can't run from this. Yeah. Or even in the, in the movies when they're like, we have a we have a, a lava blanket that they... Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I never heard of that. Or lava blanket? <laughs> yeah, have you not seen the, the... They're like, oh, we'll just put this lava blanket over us and then the lava will go over us and not burn us and then we'll be able to stand up once it's all done and cooled. Wow. What movie Makes is that? no sense. I've seen it in a few different ones. If oh, anybody knows the movies, but like the lava blanket is the most insane thing. I I know they have fire blankets like that for wildfires, yes. but I swear yeah. to God, in multiple movies, I have seen the lava blanket. Right. I know what you're talking about, the fire shelter with uh, with, uh, what, with the wildfire fighters. Yeah, it's like a silver sheet that they put over. The, and yeah. Aside scary. from the fact that the smoke will generally kill you before the flames. Sure. Um, it's. Yeah, no, sorry. I, I, no, no, I'm, it's, uh, I'm going down a rabbit hole of my rabbit hole. No, that's fine. Actually, I mean, uh, years and years ago, I was uh, when I was in the army, we were in Redmond, I think Redmond, Oregon, and we were supporting smoke jumpers and you know the firefighters who were out there doing wildfires. Fascinating stuff. And I thought also these guys are some of the they're like sort of like these Zen warrior yeah kind of people who are like out there fighting fires. Like when it's my time, it's my time. Right. It's like oh <laughs> I'm my like, gosh. But it's uh, but back but back to Japan. I mean, Japan is incredibly unstable. So I think that when things happen, these tragedies, you know, the Japanese are, I think, in some ways, better prepared for some things. You know, mm. their their reaction may not be, <clears throat> you know, sometimes the, not the fastest. But uh, but you're seeing the reaction that happened in you know Ishikawa, and you're seeing during the Tohoku quake that had happened, you know, a number of years ago, the one that you mentioned with Fukushima with the the nuclear reactor. Mm-hmm. And that in itself, I think we've talked about that in the past. The Japanese take a lot of precautions, but there's a certain level where they won't go beyond. You know, they, there may be a certain lack of imagination. I think that's one of the the problems with Japanese society is that there isn't there's there's an ability to go to a certain level, but not think beyond it really. Yeah, you're you're in the box, and part of that is again, it's cultural that. When you look at a a U.S. culture, not only are we very individualistic, but we value creativity and we foster it from a very, very young age. Not to mention then a lot of our sort of our pop culture phenomena are highly creative people who are thinking outside the box. And so our values and how we raise our community members to be creative and to value creativity means that we have a very creative, very innovative culture. In Japan, it is about, it, you know, even in the schools, it's much more that collectivist mentality of throwing in and getting through it together. Uh, even there were some psychological experiments around uh, switching cultures uh, or, you know, sort of cultural practices and having American students take an approach in Japanese classes, at least in this study, I I can't say I know much. I'm not an expert at like Japanese education systems, but the, the kids that get done solving a problem first go and help the other kids to solve the problem. And so you're done solving the problem. Once everybody in the class understands how to solve that problem, 
Whereas in the U.S., you raise your hand when you're done, <laughs> screw your classmates, you know, survival of the fittest in geometry. And they swapped practices and told the American kids that they needed to, you know, once you're done, you go and you help the other people. And what they found was, while the um, in sort of a longitudinal study, they found that the kids that had to help their classmates, the entire class on average scored better and understood concepts better. However, in the classes where you had kids that were like, everybody for themselves, if you figure it out, sit there quietly, when you're done, don't help anybody. You had a much larger gap between those who were excelling and those who weren't. But those who were excelling were excelling well beyond where the kids in the collectivist environment were excelling. Again, another rabbit hole, but just to just to show how our, our cultures are Japanese cultures are not built to really foster that level of creativity and thinking outside the box and rewarding that, you know, it's just very different. Yes. Well, uh, I, I did spend uh, a year uh, working in a Japanese education system in the. Oh, so countries. you are an expert. <laughs> no, no, not by any means. It's, uh, but it is observationally, you know, and anecdotally, I can say, you know, that year I spent in the countryside uh, working at the elementary and middle school level, which is fascinating stuff, by the way. We could do a whole episode on just like working in Japanese schools and what the kids are like. But I would really um, like that. But it was it was very much a system. Is that um, you know here in the United States there are expectations that you have to complete a minimum amount of education, which is your high school. Without high school, you're just pretty much looked at as basically being not complete uh, mm -hmm. and not competitive. In Japan, I mean, prior to the 30-year economic collapse, the, the way that the post-war system worked was is that, you know, the idea that everybody had their place and you worked to the best of your ability to get to a certain area. Um, the elites were people who were being guided from a very young age. You know, you were going to the best kindergarten. You went to the best, you know, shogako, the best you know, elementary school, chugako, you know, middle school, et cetera, et cetera. And then you would be guided through a path eventually to go to university and then to the higher companies or the higher levels of government. Um, everybody else kind of like went through a series of places. The minimum standard was supposed to be your middle school. Once you completed middle school, you were considered that you had enough that you could go in and be doing things like itinerant work, construction. You could work in factories. You could do something. You mm. could work at 7-Eleven. And by the way, working at 7-Eleven is not looked at necessarily as a failure, you know? Because if you're gonna work at 7-Eleven, you're gonna be the best 7-Eleven worker. And anybody who's ever been to a Japanese kombini, a Japanese convenience store, will tell you that it is at a whole different level. <laughs> I don't go into 7-Elevens in the United States, but I love 7-Eleven or Lawson's or any, uh -huh. uh, all the different types of, you know, kombini that were in Japan are just absolutely amazing. They're just an amazing concept. Um, different from what we do here. They Japanese do that really well. Uh, but high school students could do certain things. University students could do certain things. So, I mean, it was just these places that you once you once you got out of those places, there were things for you to do. And th this was where your path was for the rest of your life. And there's no real moving within Japan. But that now leads to a, maybe a discussion about economics, is that when the Japanese economy began to sort of slide 30 years ago and it's been in a 30-year slide, and especially when we started seeing in the 2000s, when we had like the global economic crisis uh, and companies weren't hiring, 
if you were a Japanese person, you were moving through, let's say you were you were on a track and you graduated from high school uh, or you graduated from university, um, those companies weren't hiring or those organizations weren't hiring or the government wasn't hiring. And you sort of missed your window because there's no going back. It's like once that bus leaves the station, it's never coming through that mm. station again for you. And that's the part about Japan that I don't think because here in the West, there's a lot more, at least a flexibility. You can change your life. You can go back mm -hmm. to school. You can do things. And there are ways to do that in Japan. But the traditional you know, ways of going, there are a lot of people who missed millions of people who missed that window of opportunity and that could never get back. And so that's sort of like when they talk about a lost generation in Japan, that's what they're talking about. Okay. They get out of school and there are supposed to be these jobs kind of waiting for them. Those places aren't hiring. So then they just cannot get a job even at a later date. Or is it just there's too many people now looking for those jobs when the jobs open back up? Well, if you think about it, it, what it means is is that you let's just take a person who is maybe taking the traditional salary man or salary woman kind of like mm -hmm. approach, right? The company person. And and by the way, I mean there was a period where like, you know, there was supposed to be men. Now there's men and women in the in the workforce. But, you know, traditionally in a Japanese company, yes, you would have people who would go through university, they would go through a hiring process which is very, very arduous, you know, and then go through interviews, you'd have to write a traditional sort of like, you know, uh, your your CV, your resume has to be handwritten. It's very, very, oh, you know, oh it's, it's, and it has to be done, you know, really nicely done in your kanji and everything else. Oh, wow. And so it's the idea then that people were competing, you're always in competition past a certain point, right? Let's go back a little bit. Let's talk about like childhood in Japan. When you're a child, when you're a little kid, you are allowed a lot of freedom. There's two times in your life that you're allowed a lot of freedom. One when you're really young and one when you're really old. And then everything in between, you're kind of like stuck. And so oh. <laughs> when you go to a Japanese elementary school, it is anarchy. It is absolute bedlam. And I thought they were, I thought it was hilarious and scary and hilarious. Um <laughs> But once they get out of elementary school, the expectation is you're now you have to get serious and this is where you're going. And then things get things get increasingly more serious and things get increasingly increasingly more difficult, right? Each level. It's like a video game. You're leveling up. When you get to if you get to the university level, university is kind of seen as sort of like a little break. You have to work really hard to get into university and to get into the right university. But once you're there, the expectations were not really high for you to really perform well, right? You just had to be there and not fail out. Just do what you have to do, but have a little bit of fun because after that, it's going to get serious again for the rest of your working career. So when you had these people who were coming in in the 90s and the early, in the early 2000s, and then we had this economic downturn and companies were laying people off or they're... Because the idea was that Japanese companies don't lay people off. Once you get hired, you're in for life, and then you're supposed to show your, your loyalty. But, you know, mm -hmm. we saw the economic downturn. We saw companies having problems. You're in this cadre, this cohort of people, and you're moving since elementary school you're moving with this cohort of people and as you're going that cohort is probably narrowing because people are being diverted in different directions some people are finishing their education at this level some people are finishing it here if you've gone all the way to the end right you've gone to university and gotten your degree you are then looking for work you're applying for jobs 
but there's no jobs or they're only taking a very limited number of people, you're having then these people who have no place else to go. And so then you end up in what they call the, the arbaito or the frita kind of, you know, the free timer or the arbaito is like from work from German, right? Arbeit. Uh, that's sort of like part-time workers, right? And you get stuck in this sort of like part-time working class and you're doing jobs. You're working at 7-Eleven. You're cleaning airplanes at Narita Airport. You're doing something where it's not like a full-time regular job and you're kind of stuck in this limbo. And some Japanese people can break out of it and they can find things to do. But a lot of people were stuck because there weren't really a lot of options for those people. Um, and at the same time, too, there was also a period where a lot of young Japanese didn't want to live like their parents and grandparents were, you know, working up teen hours. Uh, and that's mm -hmm. what you can talk about economically, too, is that, I mean, the work culture in not just Japan, but also South Korea and in China, uh, you see kind of like working for work's sake, but it's not really effective work. And having worked in Japanese offices and, and businesses, you're there because the boss is there. And so everybody just kind of sticks around and does things. Or you're doing these incredibly inane kind of like intellectual exercise things. You're you're counting the number of widgets that have been widgetized over the past, you know, couple of months and then whatever, you know, you're doing you know, all this paperwork, but you're there and you're putting in, in tremendous amounts of hours, you know, during your work week uh, and, and putting in more than you would say in the West, but doing nothing really, except, you know, just trying to look busy. That's not effective, right? So, so you have people who are not able to get inserted into the matrix of, of, of the business. You have a workforce that may be overworked and uh, economically you're not getting the same level of, of, of outputs, right? So there's one reason why they talk about like in Scandinavian countries, you know, they're getting a lot more bang from their people than they are, say, in Asian countries. You know, they may be working harder and longer, but they're not working effectively. And so that's why you have your quality of life goes down in, in countries like Japan, too. People complain about the fact that, you know, I'm living in a shoebox. I'm commuting in a crowded train. I'm working very long hours. And then I don't really have like a lot of opportunities for growth. You know, it's sort of like I'm just sort of stuck here in this, this matrix. I'm here until basically I retire or die. Right. So <laughs> that's, you know, that, that's kind of paints the picture of where these people are at. And I do think it, it would be very interesting too to do another episode on work and employment. Uh, yes. I think that's, that's a whole ball of wax. That's really interesting. Yes. I think we were talking about doing global the global labor pool. Yeah. Yeah. I think we should definitely right. do that. So, oh, with this 30-year decline, then where does Japan sit right now? There like back is... of the napkin. <laughs> if right. you had to, yeah. Well, there's one more thing that we have to talk about. And that's, I should have probably talked about it earlier, but it was demographics. And I think mm. that most of our listeners know that the Japanese have not been creating a lot of new Japanese for a very long time. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that. There's a lot of social and economic reasons. Part of that, one of the things I heard in Japan was, is that, you know, Japanese wives were mad at their husbands and so they refused to sleep with them. And so, you know, that's, that's a very simplistic way of saying it. But it was, it was like, you may be living in a bedroom community outside of Tokyo, maybe two hours away in Ibaraki or Chiba or Kanagawa or someplace like that. Your husband 
it might stay in the city all week long. He may be there actually for a couple of weeks because it just makes more sense because of the work hours. You know, he may not be able to return home. Or maybe he, in, or with the Japanese culture, maybe he's just staying there because he doesn't want to come home. And maybe he's, you know, carousing bars and doing other things after work with his coworkers, doing nomikai, whatever. But the fact is, is that there was uh, this sort of this, this social disconnect and there were not having a lot of kids. Two, that they said, you know, if you're living in a shoebox, it's not very conducive you know, to basically having lots of kids um, if you don't have a lot of room to raise them. And so mm-hmm. for various reasons, I mean, the Japanese just have had some of the lowest birth rates in the industrialized world. Uh, demographically, that means then you have a lot more older people than there are younger people to support the country. And that puts additional mm. stresses on it. Now, I've heard in the past couple of years, being an 18-year-old right now in Japan, uh, for maybe one of the first times in the in post-World War II history, you know, an 18-year-old has options. Whereas before they were, you know, great-grandparents, grandparents and parents would have to struggle. You'd be competing with everybody. And it was the it was up to the universities, the government, everybody to have the pick of the litter and to choose who they wanted. Now, 18-year-olds are being courted by companies. They're being courted by the government uh, to come in and, and have choices. Uh, but the thing is still, there's not a lot of Japanese. <laughs> the question yeah. is, where does that go demographically? You know, And the Japanese are very much not... Usually countries can solve these problems through immigration. And the Japanese are not what I would call very pro-immigration. Like a lot of Asian cultures, a lot of East Asian cultures, they're not very um, welcoming to mm-hmm. outsiders, you know, even fellow Asians. I mean, mm-hmm. Japanese look at Koreans and Chinese as being aliens as, as much as as much as Westerners. Right. You know, they're all foreigners. Um, everyone's guilty of that, I suppose. But mm-hmm. uh, in, in Asia, but in, in, in every other places, too. But the thing is, is that so you're not going to get it through immigration. It's very hard to come to Japan. And even if you get Japanese citizenship as a for, as a former foreigner and you become a, a foreigner and you become a Japanese citizen, you're never really going to be considered really Japanese because it's an, mm-hmm. more of an ethnicity rather than a, than a nationality. Um, at the same gotcha. time, too, you can try to, uh, try to make things so that people start having more kids. But it's really hard. You know, you just can't instantaneously just snap your fingers and have more people. And you're seeing that with the same problems, too, with Korea and China and Japan. You know, demographic yeah. for various reasons. Uh, that's going to have long-term effects on, the, on Japan and its ability to be able to create. Japan's strength has been that they moved a lot of their industry overseas. And so, for example, you start seeing that they said, well, we can't rely upon building everything here. And so they started building factories in like places like the United States. And if you go down south, there are a lot of Japanese-like industries. Oh, that, yeah. Yeah, I feel like a good portion of the Georgia economy is driven by Japanese manufacturing. I worked for a couple of weeks, a third shift, at a Japanese brake-making manufacturer, Ambrake, in Kentucky, in Elizabethtown, Kentucky, for mm-hmm. a couple of weeks just to, to do something. And I worked like a third shift, and it was an, uh, it was an interesting experience. It really was mm-hmm. very interesting. There are whole areas of the country in the United States that are now that. And because the Japanese were smart, though, they, they knew that they had to diversify and get out there and find uh, places to expand their industry. And that's why Japanese businesses and Korean businesses are, are also having a lot more success because they are able to build outside of their home country. And you don't see that with the, with the Chinese. You know, you're not seeing really, you know, the Chinese building massive, comp- you know, 
<laughs> if they did, they'd be. Abs- they'd, they'd be- Oh, I almost had the absolutely jar. Absolutely. Well, there we go. Absolutely. Yeah. And I I do think it's a very different attitude. I think even stateside, when you look at some of the racial biases, uh, the Japanese are, I think, in some ways held in a different group. And I do think part of that is that there's this openness, you know, that they are willing to, to expand and to you know, maybe not fully integrate with an American culture, but to coexist uh, happily. And that, that makes a, that makes a difference. I think that there's just sort of an attitudinal difference around the Japanese communities here in the States. Well, you see that, you see that the idea of employment as a form of social control, and and by social Mm. control, I mean that it's maintaining order and underlying a lot of Japanese Korean and uh, Chinese is a Confucian model, right? I mean, underneath a lot of this, and that is about the idea. And Confucianism is is ultimately about maintaining control. Uh, and there, there may be people who are experts on this who would disagree with me or say I'm making it overly simplistic. And I do apologize. And if you would like to come in and and, and rebut yes, this, yes, please, please feel free. Maybe that's what I'm. I've doing. been feeling like there's a whole lot of generalizations that I've been <laughs> spewing this entire episode. That I'm like making notes to to engineer Trevor of please remove this, please remove this. <laughs> like, that's well, not quite what I wanted to say. It's like that. It's like that part in the movie Jaws, you know, where Sheriff Brody is like, you know, uh, he's he's throwing chum into the water and you're just tempting like the mm-hmm. shark to come up and get you. And so that's what's going to happen here eventually. <laughs> Somebody's going to come out of the water and grab us. Um, Our dozens of listeners are going to be upset with us. I know, but I mean, but one of the things though is that that Confucian model. And when things are going well, you keep people employed, and that's the social contract. You know, you have a job. You're being you're being paid, and there's other benefits that are coming out of this, and we're keeping you busy, and therefore you can't cause trouble for the system, for the order, right? Uh, which is one of the reasons why you know people look at China and say, well, you know, China makes the most of this in the world, and China makes the most of that in the world, and you're like, well, why is that? Do you think it's because they actually need all of that? Do they need all of this pig iron? Do they need all of this aluminum? No, they're doing it. They're working people, you know, full on. Uh, economically to keep them busy so that they're not, you know, as long as they're busy and making money, then no one's asking questions. And the thing Mm -hmm. is, too, is that Japan, uh, one of the ways that the Japanese were able to fund (laughs) their their phenomenal growth, well, number one is they didn't have to really worry about national defense because the U.S. was doing it. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's changing. But the big thing, too, was the fact that the government was just throwing money. There was there was a lot of capital that they were producing money and throwing at it. And eventually, if they had to, you know, and then if they, if things started going south, they could just write it all off and start over again, which to the West seems like anathema. We were like, what are you doing? You can't do it that way. But there's a different sort of economic sort of like calculus that's going on here. And the Chinese do the same thing. But you see that it's you, eventually it does catch up to you, which is what we mm-hmm. saw, right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, prior, just before the, the Japanese bubble burst, I remember I had talked to a person who worked for the BOJ, the Bank of Japan, and uh, we were talking about the economy and what happened. And he said, I knew that, that we were in trouble when we had little old ladies who were investing in the Japanese stock market. And the Japanese stock market works differently than the American stock market. You know, the Japanese stock market is more in line for the government and for companies to continue to trade and to prop each other up. 
it's not really a place that you know your average citizen goes to to invest and make you know lots of money like we do here it's something a little bit mm. different um but you know i said you but you had people who had so much money they didn't know what to do with it so and they just started investing it because it seemed like the thing to do but the thing is too is that the japanese have something that the chinese desperately wanted and is that before the japanese became old they became rich and so the japanese are really great at savings which is something i think americans could learn from them is <laughs> we're not uh, but your average japanese person was was a saver and so during the high points of the japanese economy japanese people were saving in fact they said japanese housewives probably saved japan because they were constantly putting money into the national saving system through the postal saving system um mm -hmm. and that's where a lot of people you know in the european and some asian countries uh, the postal system was also your banking system you know traditionally hmm. so that's where a lot of people put their money they had postal banking accounts that they were putting in they were they were run by the government and they saved their money and they uh i mean the, 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 there's no real when i was in japan it was like i think like the uh the interest rate was something like 0.001% so you're not going to get any money you know by putting money in the bank yeah but by saving that money, um, it, it did it put a lot of capital that the government was then able to use, you know, for projects and things like that. And at the same time, you didn't have to pay a lot of interest on it. But at least that money was there, right? And then that way, then when these people retired, they had money to support them now in their old age. So you don't necessarily have to worry about a diminishing youth population to support this big group. It still does, but you don't, but not nearly as bad as something like China, which doesn't have uh, that social kind of system. And so you have a rapidly aging Chinese population that has to be supported by a dwindling, by the way, I mean, you have the one child policy, mm. which is almost as effective as not having kids in Japan and in basically keeping things really small. And uh, you're being supported. You have a pair of parents who are being supported by one kid you know, with very mm -hmm. little savings and no social. And by the way, there's no social insurance system in, uh, mm. in China, per se, too. There's no taxation, but there's also no social I insurance. didn't realize that. Not, yeah. That's it's, it's, a, yeah. It's, it's hmm. very different. So, um, you know, but the thing is, though, is that the Chinese wanted to get rich before they got old and they didn't. The Japanese got rich before they got old as a society. So that's what's kind of been the saving grace that's allowed them to kind of continue to keep motoring on for these past 30 years. But now what does Japan look like with a much smaller society, um, you know, fewer people um, and in a much more dangerous neighborhood with less, yeah. I think, less. So you have a United States that's probably looking to you to do more of your own heavy lifting. You have neighbors who may be looking at you, predator, you know, with a predatory eye. You know, um, and you may have another neighbor who may be leaving the neighborhood soon or at least diminishing. And that makes it more dangerous because how do the Russians, re you know, what does Russia do if it starts feeling that it's losing control of those, you know, those eastern oblasts? Uh, mm -hmm. it, what does it do? You know, does it lash out? Does it, uh, you know, like I said, Putin is not there because he wanted to see, uh, you know, the Kirills. <laughs> <laughs> he's probably that's probably the right. first time that a, that a that a russian president a russian leader has been out there in a couple of decades maybe 15 years maybe or so i mean he went out there originally i think to to, to promise you know the revitalization uh sure. you know of the of the area and everything else but now it's a whole different russia 
So it's it's interesting. I mean, this is the sort of pressures that we're seeing that are being put on here. And I'm hoping that we'll be able to have a guest come on to talk a little bit to these kind of things, mm-hmm. uh, a person who's an expert on this. Uh, we're, we're trying to get somebody to come on to talk about this. But Can I ask one more question? Um just to and I I, I can I, I have a feeling we'll be revisiting this topic again just because it's such a dynamic region and things do seem to be changing. But stateside, we certainly have seen ESG or sustainability efforts. They are fading fast as far as popularity. I think COVID was really potentially the first nail in the coffin because no one met their goals that they had stated. And so the whole PR boon of engaging with ESG priorities kind of fell flat and hurt. Certainly we saw some major corporations take the hit for not being able to, uh, to meet those, those goals that they set for themselves Uh, on a macro scale. What is the outlook on ESG on environmentalism, sustainability efforts for corporations or potentially the government? What does that relationship look like? I think, you know, we have a good handle on what it looks like in the States with you've got your different stakeholders that feel very differently about it. You know, everyone agrees that that taking care of the environment and sustainability is important. It's just to what cost and to what end. But what does that look like in Japan? I think... Well, the Japanese, I think, have a different idea of environmentalism and and sustainability. There's been sort of like, I guess if you look at, okay, I'll use an example here to talk about something that in the post-war period in Japan, um, there was an idea that Japan would become a major producer of, oh gosh, what is the kind of wood? Cedar. There we go. They were going to have uh, cedar trees. And then Japan was going to become a major producer. This was just an idea. So what they did is they started tearing down forests on mountains and replanting cedar trees. And then you had all oh, this cedar, right? But cedar produces a lot of pollen. And so now mm-hmm. you had the unintended consequence that that policy, it never it never came about. They never ended up like, you know, actually cutting down cedar trees and becoming a major producer of cedar. So these cedar trees have been growing for 70 something years and they're massive and, they're in the, and they produce these massive clouds of pollen. And when you're in Japan, Japanese suffer from hay fever and you know, the this, this spring fever kind of things and allergies. My wife mm-hmm. <laughs> suffers from allergies. And I wonder a lot of that is just because of this. But that's like the unintended consequence, right? There's a lot of famous, you know, uh, stories about like mercury poisoning and things like that. And um, incinerators, carcinogens and things like that. It's like the Japanese appreciate, I think, nature. They appreciate the environment. But I don't know if they have the same idea about preservation. It just culturally is kind of different. Um, it doesn't mean that they're not doing things to try to preserve things. And Japan can be very beautiful and they've done some really amazing things. But the Japanese also, I think, see themselves at war with nature. So if you've ever Mm. seen like, if you've ever seen Japanese beaches, I mean, there's only one. No, when I was in Japan, there was only one free flowing river that had not been dammed or concreted up. But if you go through the Japanese countryside, you'll see that the Japanese have you know, mountainsides will have concrete reinforcements to keep it from collapsing. You'll see that rivers have got concrete reinforcements to keep it from flooding or to keep it from mm. erosion. If you go to beach sides, you'll see these giant sort of like these 
hexagonal kind of like like these concrete block things that are put there to kind of to act as brakes to hinder or to impede erosion or to try to slow down you know uh, waves from coming in um there's always this sort of like idea that japan is always fighting against you know the elements and here in the united states i think we have a much more bigger we have a bigger country we have a lot more room when my japanese friends have come to the united states and lived here for any period of time a lot of them not all of them but a lot of them have just been sort of intoxicated by the space and the the freedoms that you have the things that we take for granted they suddenly come in here one of my friends basically came over and the first thing he did was he said he bought a big Delta 88, you know, the big old American cars, 70s mm-hmm. car. And he drove from like the East Coast to the West Coast you know, oh, over wow. a week. And just just because you can't do that. I mean, in Japan, uh, getting a driver's license is extremely expensive, very arduous, a lot of tests. And I know a lot of Americans would say, you know, after they drive around, they say they wish it was a lot more arduous for people to get licenses. Yeah. But the thing is, is that most wow. of the roads, most of the major highways are toll roads. So, I mean, it just is absolutely amazing to a Japanese person to be able to drive incredibly long distances and just not have to pay money and to go mm-hmm. places and be able to do things. And it's just, it's a different sort of a thing. With ESG, I think for the Japanese is that when they're operating in a country like the United States or someplace in Europe where those are very important, they're going to be a lot more maybe... They'll follow, they'll follow the rules and follow the laws. Yeah. Um, but if it's not important, I mean, that's the same reason why Western countries go to you know, go to developing countries because there's not so yeah. many rules and it does, you know, you, you don't have to worry about working people 18 hours a day mm-hmm. and, and poisoning them with all sorts of crazy things. You know, it's... Ah, <laughs> uh, the good old days. <laughs> well, I mean, look at India. I mean, India, yeah. I, 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 uh-huh. I don't know if ESG is really a thing in India and it's, they don't need foreigners to come in and, and screw things up, you know, it's like... Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's just sort of like the idea of like your relationship or your idea with nature or what you think, you know, and, and we have very strong ideas about environmentalism here in the United States and here in the West. And we think that that is a universal and it's not necessarily. Exactly. We, yeah. You know, um, but I think that some of the things, too, is that as the world becomes less globally focused and becomes more, I, I don't want to say selfish, but more internally you become mm-hmm. more block and more internally focused. You're not going to have as much control or not going to be right now. You want to make sure that your coffee and your chocolate is responsibly sourced uh, in five or six years. That may not be possible or may oh, not yeah. be nearly as, as important. I would argue right now there isn't actually such a thing as humanely sourced coffee. <laughs> yeah. It's just not like it's oxymoronic. But that's a whole other issue. <laughs> uh, but I do think you're, that's a really good point you're raising, though, that ESG priorities, not unlike DEI priorities, uh, really hinge upon not just the culture, but the competing demands. And while, I, and I think it's an interesting kind of contrast because you think of Japan as being, you know, Zen and very tuned into nature, you know at one with it, living with it. And on the other hand, it I have not heard about the kinds of, you know, investments and, and protections and priorities that you hear about in the States. And, and it's just a very, it's an interesting dichotomy that 
I agree. I, I'm very interested to watch ESG on a macro scale globally for the next five years as things continue to get tougher. And there's very pressing issues like war and the economy and all sorts of things. I I don't know that right now, I don't know I, that I'd be pushing my kids into a career in ESG. <laughs> you know, I I would say that... And this is just you know my observation, you know, but I would say that things like ESG and DEI grew out of I think um, things you know, where when we had the time, we the money, plenty. and the interests, you know, we had a lot of everything, and so therefore you can you can, can be concerned about things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're in a if you're in an area first world of, problems, yeah, right. If you have a, if you're in the middle of a, of a of a global inflation or global recession or a depression, if you're in the midst of a of a war, um, those things kind of go out the window. Um, mm-hmm. You're you're more focused, I think, more on the now, and the people are more focused upon, you know, their I hate to say it, but they're more in their narrow self interests. Um, yeah. It's harder to be altruistic. It's harder to be thinking in larger goals. You know, if you are not certain where your next where your bread's going to come from, where your next meal is going to mm-hmm. come from. Maslow's hierarchy um, of needs. Yeah. Yes, yes, Maslow. Um, and the other thing too is that it, it, I had a I had a Japanese professor. Um, he was Japanese, and it was a professor at, at doing you know Jap- We were learning about Japanese culture, so I guess I can call him Japanese professor. But I, my, I, Jap- I, that's fair. <laughs> I was thinking about <laughs> how I was going to say that. Thanks for clarifying that he was Japanese. And he was Japanese, and, and he was your was, Japanese was, professor. Was my Japanese and he was professor. teaching about Japan. About Japan. Well, I just figured because people have been saying, "Well, was he Japanese?" You know, maybe there's my. I'm crystal here. clear now. Yep. <laughs> uh, but uh, Shirakawa Sensei, I remember him talking about. You know, he said once in one of his courses, he was talking about Japan, and he said Japan is neither immoral or amoral; it's unmoral. And I said, "What the heck is unmoral mean?" And he said, "How can you judge somebody, or how can somebody, you know, consider morality if they don't have a?" understanding of what the word moral means there's no morality and so that's what he said japan was it was just Mm. it was just it wasn't it there was no concept of morality and morality is something that's very strong here in the west i mean we talk about it we we, i think we we do a lot of debate about things about being moral and immoral right so that that opened my eyes up that there was a whole different culture that didn't understand you know how can you, you do these types of things about the current situation that's going on in Ishikawa, you're seeing something that you wouldn't have seen in the past, and that is people donating goods to be given to the people that are in Ishikawa. So they're asking for people to bring goods. But that's something I think that the Japanese saw happening in other countries. And so they said, oh, let's adopt that, because the Japanese, I'm not going to say there's a certain level of mimicry, but they see something, they say, that seems like a good idea. Let's copy what they're doing. But that's not necessarily a Japanese tradition or an Asian tradition necessarily to do those types of things. Now, people may disagree, and there's, there's always an outlier, right? But there mm-hmm. aren't those types of things. And when I was in Japan, you know, we were talking to the Japanese about um, altruism and volunteerism and things like that. And these are things that were foreign and have were brought and introduced because Japanese were traveling and they would see this and say, I like this, or I saw this and I think this is a good idea. So... But it wasn't inherently part of the culture. 
So yeah, you wouldn't say it's like a, a very Japanese trait. Right, it's changing, but I mean, but it's mm-hmm. but that's something that was there. Whereas in the West, we have a Judeo-Christian tradition, and we do things. And but in any case, it's like so when you're talking about you know having, you know, if you're talking about equity, if you're talking about inclusion, well, I mean, if you're in a country where everybody is pretty much considered to be supposed to be the same, then it's right. Smooth. And it's like if you're different, then you're pretty much excluded. I don't know if the Japanese are necessarily interested in including a lot of people. And that, and that was something I think uh, I certainly ran into a lot working for a global company that was a very U.S. company was these priorities like diversity. Hmm. That's not something that really holds up internationally. Diversity isn't, you know, what we think of diversity is definitely not what diversity is elsewhere. And I don't think it it necessarily means there's no diversity, but it's certainly not necessarily racial. And it's a whole other, you know, kettle of fish that we can get into. But it is... We can talk about that, actually, with Japan. Very briefly, you can talk briefly about Japan because there are... Ethnically, you can look at Japanese, and I think for Westerners, we just think the Japanese are the Japanese. But there are Japanese that you look at and you can say there are Japanese who are coming from Chinese ancestry. There are Japanese who are coming from Korean ancestry. There are Japanese who are even coming from Indonesian ancestry. I mean, they're coming from all over the place, depending on what part of Japan you are. But the Japanese themselves see themselves as being a monolithic culture. But even within this culture, there are people who are traditionally excluded. Mm-hmm. So you have... Well, the, you've always got to have your haves and have-nots. Absolutely. Your in-group, your out-group. Yes. Uh, in Japan, that would be in the modern era. Uh, there would be people who, were, for example, had been survivors of the attacks of, uh, of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They were seen uh, as being you know, unclean in a, you know, kind mm-hmm. of like in a in a Shinto Buddhist kind of sense, you know, or more in Shinto, I guess, you know, to be the idea that these people are unclean because they were in a place that had been attacked. And so therefore there was, uh, there was a tremendous amount of discrimination against those people. In pre-Meiji Japan, uh, there were certain classes of people who, if you had to deal with basically like slaughtering animals, tanning leather, dealing with the dead, those were all considered very traditionally to be very dirty. So you were, you know, you were someone to be shunned. Those people are called like burakamin. In Japan, you have the modern, you have sort of like the, you have the criminal class, which is diminishing, by the way. The, we always, you know, everyone thinks of the Yakuza, right? The Yakuza are the, the, you know, the, the criminal underclass. Um, that's diminishing as a group. It's being replaced by other, by another type of sort of criminal Oh, good. Group. <laughs> Yakuza is actually, it's a three, it's like, it was from an old game, Yakuza. Uh, I can't remember what it was. There were three numbers. This, these were old counters for numbers for a game. And these were useless numbers in this game. So it, it's actually, Yakuza means actually just basically someone who's useless. And huh. the Yakuza basically came about from people who were, who were, uh, at temples, these were the people who kind of like were outside the temple and they would sell trinkets and maybe food and gambling, you know. So when you came there, there was something to do when you came to these uh, temples or whatever, often when you were visiting them. them. And then they grew out of that. They grew into sort of this, this criminal underclass. So there's always going to be these underclasses that's even in the country. And then there's also uh, they look down on people who are from the countryside versus the city. There's always mm-hmm. going to be people who are 
they're looking down on people with their education or their jobs or things like that, even though, you know, like I said, there's not the same stigma of working in a 7-Eleven. Uh, the same gotcha. time, too, though, is that, you know, there's not the same. We expect that people are going to do better, right? The, the scientist who invented the Blu-ray, remember uh, the DVD, the Blu-ray? Yeah, yeah. Okay. That was a Japanese scientist. He worked for like one of the big companies. I think he worked for Sony or something like that. And I actually got to talk to people who had worked with this guy because eventually this guy left and went to go work in the United States because they promised him, you know, we're going to give you, uh, you know, uh, uh, we're going to give you a truckload of money and you're going to get all this stuff. And all the Japanese could promise him was, well, you know, you'll get the, you'll get the eternal thanks of the company. <laughs> he wasn't going to get anything, right? <laughs> And I talked to somebody from Sony about that. I said, well, this guy, you know, like, what what could you do to keep him? And he had to, he was, he was sheepishly had to admit, it's like, there was really nothing we could do because the system isn't, isn't built that way. We don't have that flexibility. Yeah. You know, we don't treat anybody special outside. You know, everybody gets, everybody gets treated the same. And so therefore mm-hmm. there's no motivation. So when you have people who do rise above those people tend to, so that's why like Otani is playing baseball in the United States. <laughs> you know, that's why yeah. the, the guy who basically invented the Blu-ray is now, you know, in the United States. And that's where those people go. They're going to leave this sort of like that brain drain, you know, they're going to leave Japan and go someplace where they're the, the truly innovative, the truly great are going to go someplace else. And the Japanese point to that and say, see, our guy is so great. He went to the land of big rice and he did great, you know, fantastic. And that's how the Japanese look at it. <laughs> you know, the, the Americans are so lucky to have this person, you know, the, our, our mm-hmm. great Japanese. We're so awesome. We just, and it's like, no, dude, you just lost your, you just lost your best baseball player. He, the, Japan was too small to contain them. Uh, you know, you've yeah. lost your best scientists. You've lost your best thinkers. And so occasionally we lose out, like we get like a Yoko Ono or something like that. But, uh, you know. Right. Happens. <laughs> happens to the best of them. But I mean, but economically, though, I mean, those are, yeah, that's where you see the limitations. You see the stops that are yeah. in the system. Um, and that's what that, that's what hits them economically, culturally. They just don't think about certain things the same way that we think about things. So, mm-hmm. Gotcha. That's interesting. Well, it is, it Michael, is interesting. this has been a blast. I have a feeling that we will be revisiting this topic again. But thank you for sharing your wisdom. <laughs> I, I learned a ton. I, I don't know if I have wisdom. I would say maybe observations. And I, like I said, I think after this, I think if my wife or my my in laws listen to this, they're probably going to have a lot of criticism <laughs> about this and say, you know, oh my gosh, <laughs> that's not it at all. Be like, oh my god. Yeah. So these these opinions are. I'm going to say a lot of these are my these are my observations and my opinions or what I've learned over years. But I would say that. Um, but I mean, looking at the national security and the, and the economics, those are not opinions. Those are actually, mm-hmm. uh, well, those are just basically the, the realities and the facts as we see them right now. Got it. And I think all the disclaimers apply here. <laughs> Certainly. Yeah. We, 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 we're always opening to changing and learning. and, and Yes. And new Please tell us how we're wrong. We would Absolutely. love to hear yes. it. Well, I hope that everybody has a wonderful week. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope that you found it as interesting as as I certainly did. I'm I'm guessing Michael found it interesting, although he already knew most of what we were talking about. But um, (laughs) I learned a ton. So thank you very much. And we'll see you in a couple weeks. We'll see you again soon, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of The Canary Group. If you like us, please subscribe and give us five stars on your favorite listening app. Have something you'd like us to dig into? You could reach us at info at canarygroup.org. 
You can also find us online at www.canarygroup.org and on social media at canarygroup.org.